Good morning, church. It's good to be here with you today to worship our King together. Our normal preaching pastor, Joshua Kirstein, is on sabbatical. It's a planned sabbatical that we actually require of him to take every five years as a way to just get some rest from the intense labor of full-time ministry, chance to pour into his family and some concentrated time and chance for him to just get some personal study and growth and our hope that he would be rejuvenated and equipped to have a long tenure serving us here as, as our lead pastor, as our, as our main preaching pastor. My name is Rob Barber. I'm one of the elders here at Disciples Church, and it's my weighty privilege to get to proclaim and preach God's word to you today. I'll be preaching out of Psalm 5 today, so if you have your Bibles and want to turn there with me, please. Leslie mentioned we have some Bibles in the back. If you forgot yours, you're welcome to use one of those. The title for my sermon this morning is A Passionate Pursuit of Righteousness. Other than asking God to hear his prayer in the opening verses of this psalm, the first time that David actually makes a request is in verse 8 when he asks, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. In Acts, 18, or in Acts 13, 22, Scripture testifies that God called David a man after his own heart. What an incredible endorsement by God. I can't think of a better quality for us to try to emulate than to be known as a people who are after God's own heart. Psalm 5 gives us some good insight into the heart of David, the heart of a man who is after God's own heart. It's been a great blessing to me, and I hope it is for you today as well. Let's read it now, and then we'll pray. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down before your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your holy name 
may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Lord God, our King and our God, you are our Lord, not because we have done anything to earn your favor, but because of your great love and mercy toward us in Christ. We can't do anything apart from you, so we humbly ask that you would grant us ears to hear and eyes to see all that you have for us in your word this morning. I pray that you'd have mercy on me and my tongue for the sake of your name and your church, that you would guide my mouth in righteousness, that I would speak only what accords with your word. Thank you for your word and for your Holy Spirit who gives us wisdom to comprehend. We ask it without doubting because of the perfect work of Christ on our behalf. Amen. David begins in verses 1 and 2 with a passionate plea for God to hear him. This is a humble request. He's not coming with a flippant attitude, assuming that God is there at his beck and call, as if whenever he rings a bell, God will just come running. He doesn't have a casual view of God that makes him think that he can talk to God the same way he would talk to one of his buddies. There is a great reverence for who God is. And there is a great respect shown in the level of attention he exhibits in his plea. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. He calls the Lord my King and my God. The confidence that we'll see in David's prayer doesn't flow from any thought that he has the right or the status to approach God as an equal or a peer. David, being the king of Israel, acknowledges that he himself answers to a greater king. He is a subject within the kingdom of God, and being an earthly king doesn't give him any extra status or clout before the king of kings. While it's clear that David is coming to God with an attitude of great humility and reverence and recognizing God as king and creator, by calling the Lord my king and my God, he's also making a confident, comforting claim of being a covenant member of God's favored people. Not only does he draw comfort from knowing that he's praying to his God, but that he's praying to the only God. When he says, for to you do I pray, David is making a personal appeal to the one true God that he knows is there. He's not just praying the way the pagans pray, throwing up words and superstitious hope that it might benefit them somehow. It's interesting that in a culture like the one we live in that is so antagonistic toward God and the biblical revelation of who he is and what he's like, that there's no offense taken at all to the concept of prayer. Facebook and Twitter are loaded with comments from people who live in open rebellion to God. And they appeal to prayer 
and promise to pray as a means of comfort for others. If they actually do pray, they're not praying to God. They're praying to idols, to little g gods of their own making. When the unbeliever makes these kinds of statements that they will pray, it is a kindness on a horizontal human level. They're meant to encourage the person and an act of kindness can have some temporary benefit by God's common grace. But as Christians, we know that human kindness is only helpful when it points us to the truth, when it points us to the kindness of God. When we pray, we pray to the God of all kindness. We pray to the one true God who alone has the power to save, to heal, to do good. David's plea for God to hear not just his words, but his silent groaning and his cry as well, reveals that there is a level of discontentment in his soul. There is a longing for righteousness that he does not have to the point of being completely content. He wants more of God's righteousness. And that is a righteous discontentment. Think about that for a minute. Are you content with the blessings that God has given you? And should you be? Yes, we are taught in Scripture to be content with what we've been given in terms of our temporary needs and desires. But in terms of eternal things, there is a need for us to be content in God's timing and to trust in him in, that, in those terms. But we should not be content in a way that doesn't have us yearning for more of God's presence in our lives, for more of his righteousness, for more opportunity to glorify him by serving others. Are you content with waiting for Christ to return before you experience more of his righteousness in your life? Does your prayer life consist with this kind of focused determination, with tears and groaning? You've probably heard the popular phrase, let go and let God. There's certainly a context for this to be a helpful and biblical exhortation to someone who might be wrestling with the sin of trying to do for themselves what only God can do. But I've seen this phrase used also by nominal and even non-Christians as a way of resting in this idea that God's going to do what God's going to do, so I don't need to do anything. It's not received as a call to pray for God to act the way that we see David doing here. Rather, it's taken to mean that you don't need to waste any of your own time or energy. Just pass the plate to God and let him worry about it. If he wants to do something about it, that's his prerogative. This is nothing more than a self-serving attitude of laziness, not to mention how it falls short of the commandment for us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm sure that most of us would say that we are not satisfied with where we are in our spiritual maturity. But are we really making the faith-filled effort to seek it with all of our heart? Does our prayer life reflect that we love God 
more than anything else in the entire universe. Look with me at verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. In the morning you hear my voice. It's the start of my day. You are the first thought I have. My day begins with a sacrifice to you. A setting aside of all other priorities to put you first. And not as a way to get something from you, but as a way to have you. This is a model of obedience to the words of Jesus spoken in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. David does seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he does it expectantly with faith. David knows that God hears his prayer. There is a joy and a satisfaction he gets in giving his sacrifice. But he doesn't just present his sacrifice, as it were, and then walk away. He watches. He doesn't just pray and then go about his day, forgetting what he even prayed for. There is an expectation and an anticipation of how God is going to answer his prayer. He's longing to see God's response. The course of his day is set on a path that is God-centered. He's not praying just to check a box and then move on. His prayer has in mind the goal of being in tune with God throughout the day. You might not be a morning person. You might not be at your best in the morning and therefore you prefer to have a time later in the day or in the evening where you set aside some concentrated time to pray or study. There's nothing wrong with having a devotional time like that later in the day or in the evening. But don't think that you can experience fervency in your prayer life if your day is not started with a devotion to the Lord. We must wake up with our hearts set on seeking first the kingdom of God. If you set time aside every day at 3 p.m. to pray in an effort to seek first the kingdom of God, but you wake up the following morning with your mind geared toward getting to work on the day's activities, that's a lot of hours missed that could have been expectantly looking to see how God had ordained the events of your day to glorify him. I'm not saying that you have to start your morning with a 20-minute devotional quiet time every morning. But if you don't start out your day by setting your mind on your ultimate priority for the day, the pressures of this fallen world are bound to get your primary attention. You have to start your day with a thankful and expectant heart, ready to be led in righteousness through whatever God has planned for you. David builds on his reason for sacrificing and watching in the next verses. Verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. When verse 4 says, You do not delight in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. 
It's not meant to be understood as God just being more favorable to something other than wickedness or evil. It's not like someone saying, I don't really prefer the opera. I will not be dwelling with the opera. David is acknowledging the perfection of God's holy character. He knows that because God is holy, that which is not holy cannot be in God's presence. And he knows that if he wants God to answer his prayer, he cannot be like the wicked. He knows the truth of Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. David isn't just watching for an answer to his prayer. He's watching as a watchman who is on guard against that which would rob him of his request for more righteousness. Because he knows that God will not abide with evildoers, he wants to be on guard against being like those evildoers. He's focusing on the truth that God's active hatred towards sin is specific. It's not just a general hatred towards some kind of mystical, abstract thing known as sin, or even just against the great instigator of wickedness, the devil. He doesn't have a concept of God's hatred towards sin that will allow him to feel safe and cozy while he cherishes sin in his heart. He is more concerned with the fear of being guilty of sin than he is with being seen as a victim of sin. While David knows better than anyone what it's like to be targeted by the kind of men described in verses 4 through 6, his words are not intended for the purpose of building a case against his personal enemies. He's turning his attention towards the specific ways that God's holiness is set against the sins of those who do not trust in him. David is praising God for how his goodness is too pure to abide with or even tolerate sin. The punishment for sin is described in very horrific terms throughout Scripture. But David is not simply trying to avoid punishment. He's driven by a passionate desire to obtain righteousness. He wants the reward of having closer, more intimate fellowship with God. So he's diligent in wanting to avoid everything that would hinder him from obtaining his goal. Sin is the one thing that separates us from God. And David is making it clear that sin is not something outside the sinner. It originates from inside of him. These words are very contrary to our culture's popular opinion about God. They fly in the face of what they believe about the truth that God is love. They believe that if God is love, then he loves everyone equally and therefore could never hate individual persons. That idea of God has made many people very comfortable living in their sin and thinking that God loves them just the way they are. But listen to the words again. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God's hatred for sin extends to the individuals responsible for it. God doesn't punish sin itself. 
The punishment for sin is directed towards those who are guilty of sin. God doesn't send sin to hell. He sends sinners to hell. The punishment for sin must be paid by the person who is guilty of it. Praise God for the gospel of grace where Jesus took on the guilt of all who put their trust in him. He was the one who stood condemned in our place. If we are to pursue true righteousness, we must hate the things that God hates. If we are to be righteous as God is righteous, we must be conformed in our thinking and doing. We must not only love what God loves, but we also must hate what God hates. Proverbs 8, 12 and 13. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Psalm 97, 10. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. It's easy to hate the things we hate in sin. In our flesh, our hatred can be stirred up by the things that are offensive to us or are a hindrance to our own temporary desires. But to truly love God, to love his righteousness, is to hate that which is in opposition to it. The world wants to define humility as meaning that you should never say or do anything that might distinguish yourself from others in a more favorable way. In other words, in their mind, it's not humble to ever make a judgment about someone else. David's humility doesn't cause him to have a passive attitude toward the unrepentant. He doesn't take the position that he has no right to make judgments about their sin and to publicly worship God for his promise to destroy those who reject the truth and live in opposition to his holy commands. We can't give in to the worldview that because we have all sinned, we're in no position to call out the sin of others. We're called not to judge in a condemning way. We're not to judge in a way that puts us on the throne as if we are the final judge or as if we know God's final judgment concerning an individual. But if we refuse to make judgments about that which is an attack on the holiness and character of God, then we'll be left in a place where we're forced to stay silent about the good news that Christ came to save sinners. Luke 5, 31 and 32, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The good news of the gospel is only good, no, good news to those who know their need of it. David knew his need of it, and he confidently proclaims the good news in verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. But I, 
Let's pause there for a second. These two words are not a way for David to elevate his position with God in comparison to the people that were talked about in the previous verses. This is not a boast. He's not saying, yeah, that's them, God. That's them, but not me. No, not me. And he's not like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18 who prayed, thank you, God, that I am not like other men. No, there is no hint of pride or arrogance here. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, not through my record of obedience, not through my good deeds, not through my status as an earthly king, but through the abundance of your steadfast love. This is gospel language. This is a true statement made by someone who has been saved by the good news that salvation belongs to the Lord. This is not a statement about David at all. This is a statement about God. This is worship. Your steadfast love is what keeps me from being counted with those who are cast from your presence. It is your unending love towards me that causes me to worship you in the fear of you. Not a terror that makes me afraid of you, but a reverence that is grounded in a right view of your transcendent holiness. A fear that is grounded in the knowledge that I am not worthy to be in your presence apart from your mercy and grace. David believes the truth about God and it humbles him. He doesn't come to God boasting that he's not like the wicked. He comes acknowledging that the difference between him and the unrepentant is the mercy of God that has been poured out on him. God's love for him has given him a clear view of the heinousness of his own sin and all sin. He hates sin the same way God does. He knows that he can do nothing good apart from God's gracious intervention and that he is utterly dependent upon God for any righteousness. And so we ask in verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Lead me in your righteousness. Paul echoes these words in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. David knows that God will execute justice against his and David's enemies in his own perfect timing. But in the meantime, right here, right now, while I'm in the midst of being persecuted, in the midst of suffering, hiding for my life, being lied about and maligned, use the plans of my enemies for my good, that I would gain your righteousness through it. Help me to suffer the attacks of my enemies with the knowledge that it is through suffering my enemies that I am found in you. Make your way straight before me. Deal with my enemies and all other obstacles in my path, not for the sake of making my life easy, but that I might not stumble and sin against you. It's a prayer for wisdom 
to know how to walk in the path of righteousness. That there won't be a foolish need to learn the way of righteousness through repeated sin, having to make multiple twists and turns to get back on the path, but that he would learn righteousness from righteousness. He continues to describe the kind of danger that his enemies, the enemies of God, pose to him. Verse 9, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Just like we saw in verse 4, these verses are connected to the previous verse with the word for. David is continuing the thought from verse 8 here. Because of my enemies, make my way straight before you. For there is no truth in their mouth. They flatter with their tongue. There are three references to the mouth in this one sentence. Mouth, throat, and tongue. David's greatest concern about how his enemies seek to harm him is the words they speak. That there is no truth in their mouth. Their words lead to destruction, and he knows that he must be guarded from their deceptive influence. We don't have time to look them up in Scripture, but it's filled with references to God's hatred of lying, deceit, and falsehood. And that is because it is a direct assault on God himself, because God is truth. I do want to read a few of these verses. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To lie is to deny the truth. To deny the truth is to deny Christ. When you think about it, every sin ever committed can be tied back to a denial of the truth. Whether I steal, kill, cheat, covet, or lie, I'm doing so because I am suppressing the truth. Maybe not consciously, but functionally that's what I'm doing. I'm choosing to believe the lie that I know better than God. I'm choosing to believe the same lie that Eve believed when the serpent deceived her into believing that God was a liar. We need God's help and guidance to be righteous in a world filled with unrighteousness. And we need to be aware of the danger of the falsehood that surrounds us. The lies of the wicked lead to death, not only for themselves, but for those who believe their flattering words as well. In verse 6, David acknowledged the truth that God destroys those who speak lies. And now in verse 10, he prays, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. If David's motive here is to have, God's punish, to have God punish these men, because he's angered at how their wickedness and sin has harmed him personally, that would be a sinful 
desire for personal vengeance. But that's not what's going on here. God would not have ordained these words be written and preserved as a song to be sung and worshipped to him if they were displeasing to him. Matthew Henry's commentary on this verse is very helpful. They have, by their sins, deserved destruction. There is enough to justify God in their utter rejection. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, by which they have filled up the measure of their iniquity and have become ripe for ruin. Persecuting God's servants fills the measure as soon as anything. Nay, they may be easily made to fall by their own counsels. That which they do to secure themselves and do mischief to others, by the overruling providence of God, may be made a means of their own destruction. He pleads, they have rebelled against thee. Had they been only my enemies, I could safely have forgiven them. But they are rebels against God, his crown and dignity. They oppose his government and will not repent to give him glory. And therefore, I plainly foresee their ruin. His prayer for their destruction comes not from a spirit of revenge, but from a spirit of prophecy by which he foretold that all who rebel against God will certainly be destroyed by their own counsels. If it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to those that trouble his people, as we are told it is in Scripture, we pray that it may be done whenever we pray. Father, thy will be done. The Psalms were written during the Old Covenant while the nation of Israel was still living under Old Covenant promises, specifically the Abrahamic Covenant. We read of it in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Ab Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God had promised to curse those who dishonored or cursed Abraham and his descendants. David as the king of Israel was God's chosen representative of the nation of Israel. So when David was being cursed and dishonored by the wicked men in his day, he took it not as a personal attack against himself, but as an attack against God's chosen representative for the nation of Israel, which shows ultimately that it is an attack against God himself, his plan, choice, and promise. The verse says, they rebelled against you, God. Other than Christ, no one in Scripture is shown to be more gracious to his enemies than David. One of David's greatest enemies was King Saul. He was an evil man who ruthlessly sought to kill David. But when David was given the opportunity to kill Saul, he would not lay a hand on him because of his reverence for the office that Saul held as God's anointed king of Israel. David's passion is governed by a zealous desire to see God rightly honored by himself and all of creation. 
He is jealous for God to be praised as he is due. Psalm 119 gives us a look at how passionate David was for God's word, for his revealed will. David knew God's word. And in praying as he did for God to curse his enemies, he was aligning himself with God's revealed will. He was praying for God to do what he had already promised to do. He was praying for God's will to be done in accordance to the revelation that had been given. The old covenant was filled with symbolism meant to point us to eternal realities. Jesus taught his disciples that everything in the Old Testament was about him. He is the final and perfect fulfillment of the law. The reason we don't sacrifice animals and have a system of priestly mediation is because Jesus is our perfect sacrifice for sin. And he is the perfect and only mediator between God and man. God's gracious, temporary choice of Israel as a nation is symbolic of his gracious, eternal choice of the elect. The conditional promises made to the physical nation of Israel in the Old Covenant are symbolic of the eternal promises given to the spiritual nation of Israel. Jesus has met all of the conditions of the New Covenant for us. And he will return to make all things new by putting an end to all wickedness and evil. The covenant blessings will be received by the bride of Christ because of his perfect obedience and because of his sacrificial death. And on the other hand, in the more ultimate way, we will in fact see God usher in his eternal wrath to punish those who are unrepentant. Because as it says, they have rebelled against you, God. We can be as confident as David that God will deal with his and our enemies according to his perfect will and holy character. It is good and right for us to look forward to the day when Christ will return and destroy all the enemies of God. And at the same time, we've been called to proclaim the gospel to our enemies, to love them by pointing them to Christ. It's not our job to convert them or to condemn them. We are only the means that God has appointed for the gospel to be proclaimed. It is through the proclamation of the truth of the gospel that the Holy Spirit uses to convert those whom God has chosen. David's prayer then moves from praying for God to deal with his enemies to praying for God to deal graciously with his people. Verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Again, David is praying the will of God here. In verse 11, he asked for God's blessing and protection for the people of God. Then in verse 12, he gives assurance for his prayer based on his knowledge of God and his revealed will that he does bless the righteous. That is, those who take refuge in or trust in his righteousness. And that he covers them with favor as with a shield. 
They are protected by the favor of God, by God's unmerited grace and steadfast love. Notice the heart of David here. His desire for righteousness is not only for himself. He loves the community of God's people. He wants to be with the community of all those who love his holy name. The righteousness of God is manifested and put on glorious display when the community of God's people are walking in righteousness. I am so thankful to be a part of a local church where the righteousness of Christ is evident in the lives of so many who are growing in victory over sin. Where there's been sin, we have seen genuine repentance and brokenness. It's been so encouraging to see so many of you embracing more and more accountability as you get a taste for the fruit that comes from inviting other mature brothers and sisters in Christ to speak into your sin struggles. If you're a Christian who wants to grow in righteousness, you will not get very far on your own. Our personal relationship with Jesus is not meant to be private. All who are united to Christ through faith in him are brought into fellowship with him and his body, the church. We cannot have love for Christ and not love the church, his bride whom he laid down his life for. I want to start wrapping up by considering some application, specifically in regards to the imprecatory passages in this psalm. The imprecatory psalms are psalms in which they contain prayers for God to curse the enemies of God. They've been largely debated by Christian scholars with a wide range of differing opinions. As with other debated topics, some conclusions are biblical and there's many that are not. The spectrum of varying conclusions could probably be placed between the conclusion that the imprecatory psalms are sinful outbursts by the psalmist that should be disregarded by the reader versus the conclusion that the imprecatory psalms teach that it's okay for us to pray for God to take vengeance against our own personal enemies. Both of these extremes are unbiblical. Psalm 5 is really one of the more mild in terms of its imprecations. But it does give us reason to pause and ask, what are we to make of praying that God would not save our enemies? That he would not be merciful and gracious to them as he has been to us. It's important that we get this right if we want to be a people after God's own heart. We don't have time to refute all of the unsatisfactory interpretations of the imprecatory psalms. What I want to do is just quickly consider how the imprecations in Psalm 5 line up with the whole of Scripture, Old and New Testament, and fit within our passionate pursuit of righteousness. There are two points of application I want to make. The first is that even though it is sinful for us to seek our own vengeance, it is righteous to long for and even pray for God to take vengeance on his enemies in his time. Hopefully we've already established that David was not seeking personal vengeance here. That's important because we are clearly instructed not to in both the Old and New Testaments. Romans 12, 19 and 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul is quoting here from Deuteronomy 32, 35 and Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. We don't know who God's elect are, but we do know that the gospel is the means by which he will call them. When we love our enemies and proclaim the gospel to them, one of two things will happen. Either they will be convicted under repentance and thereby saved from the wrath of God, or they will be convicted under damnation and in their unrepentance will be storing up God's wrath against them for the day of judgment. Our hope is always for the former. And we don't know the timing of when a person might finally turn in repentance. But for those who refuse to repent and give God the honor that is due his name, we are right to rejoice in the fact that he will execute his wrath upon them on the day of judgment. That doesn't mean that we rejoice now at the thought that our personal enemies might remain unrepentant unto death. It's a rejoicing in the knowledge that everyone who blasphemes and denies our Savior will be avenged by God. The world may seem to be getting away with it for now, but we know and rejoice in the fact that he is coming again. And when he does, he will put an end to all wickedness and evil. The second point is this, and it's probably the one that we're most prone to forget. We are in a battle for our souls against real enemies. We may not know what it's like to have the kind of enemies that David did. But as God's redeemed people, we have real enemies. Not just spiritual enemies, but real people. All who remain unrepentant are enemies of God. Therefore, they are our enemies. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So when we talk about the fact that we have real enemies, it's very important not to think of them as the ones that we are engaged in warfare against. Our human enemies are not that kind of enemy. But when we neglect to recognize that those who live in unrepentant rebellion to God are enemies of God and are therefore enemies toward us, we fail to be on guard against the ways that they would seek to ruin our pursuit of righteousness. So we must understand that if we're truly saved, if we're truly united to Christ, then his enemies are our enemies. We cannot be friends with the enemies of God. Of course, that doesn't mean that we can't befriend unbelievers and seek to establish a relationship in order to share the gospel with them and call them to repentance. But scripture is clear that we can't compromise with the world in our efforts to evangelize those who are of the world. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We have to have an awareness of the reality that the world hates God and it hates us for loving him. We can see how the enemy is waging brazen attacks against God and his people in our society. But we need to be even more on guard against their flattering, deceptive words of affirmation. Too many professing Christians are embarrassed by the world's opinion of us. They've actually replaced the biblical teaching of loving our enemies with the practice of receiving them as friends. They want to be liked by the world and feel that if they're hated, they must not be acting like a good Christian. The fact is, if you're not hated by the world, it is more of an indication that you're probably not a Christian at all. Mark 13, 13, Jesus said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We need to clearly understand that we are in a battle for our souls, a battle that has already been won by our Savior, but we're still called to endure to the end. And we don't endure by returning hate for hate, just as Jesus did not revile when he was reviled. We wage war by continuing in faith, by continuing in the truth. And we love our enemies by proclaiming that truth in word and action. When we pray, we pray, we thank God for the Savior who has come and made it possible for sinners to be reconciled to him. But we also ask God to execute his final justice on the wicked every time we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, thank you for loving us while we were still your enemy. We love you only because you first loved us. It is only by your grace that we have been saved from the wrath that we deserve. Help us to live for you and to enjoy you fully in all that we do. And God, I pray that for those who came in here this morning as your enemy, I pray that they would not presume on the riches of your kindness and patience toward them, but that they would repent and trust in you. And please help us to not just endure in a way that we are biding our time until you return, but that we would wake each new morning with a zeal for more of your righteousness. You are worthy, Lord. We pray in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.